Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Just a note before we begin. This episode includes discussion of sensitive topics. Listener discretion is advised. Anna had met Rasputin a few years before. His fanatical follower, Olga, had made the introduction. And in the years since, Anna had frequently opened her home to Rasputin and his zealous believers as they gathered to pray and read the Bible. Now it was Grigory's turn. He was going to host Anna at his home in Pokrovsko. In fact, Alexandra herself had sent a whole party of women to stay with Grigory, learn from him, and share his teaching with her. She wanted to better understand how the man lived and the weight of the things he taught, more than his few visits to the palace had allowed. With the empress behind it, the trip gave Anna a thrill. Something told her this was a turning point, and that soon, like Olga, she would be in Rasputin's inner circle. But the closer the trip came, the less certain she got that his inner circle was where she wanted to be. She had seen the way that Olga and his other followers treated him. They threw themselves on him in rapture. They kissed his feet with joy. Olga bundled up hairs from his beard as sacred relics. Once, Olga even said that Grigori was transformed into Jesus Christ himself. Anna wasn't so sure. When they arrived at a way station between Siberia and the capital, Grigori joined the group to escort them the rest of the way. To seat everyone, they split the party into two different compartments. Three of the women made themselves comfortable and waved to Grigori as he led Anna and another woman, Yelena, to a different compartment, where he ushered them inside. So as Anna settled herself into the train car beside Grigori and Yelena, she had a task before her. It was time to make up her mind about who this man really was. Not to mention the whispers in the group that spending time with Grigori would mean more attention from the Empress. For Anna, the trip would certainly clarify things. 
Because as it got later and the train rattled on into darkness, Anna saw that Yelena was hanging on Grigori's every word. She was in a state of religious ecstasy. Not Anna, though. In fact, she felt sleep coming on, so she looked to the bunks in the sleeper car. There were just two beds, and Anna settled herself onto the lower one. Yelena and Grigori followed her lead, but they climbed into the upper bunk together. For Anna, the red flags were raised, and she spoke up, too. She called up that what they were doing wasn't right. Yelena should come down, she said, and share the lower bunk with her. But Yelena refused. Despite how incredibly uncomfortable she had gotten, Anna was eventually lulled to sleep by the rocking of the train. Until, that is, something woke her up in the darkness. Something scratchy against the skin of her face. It took her a moment to realize what it was. A man's beard. Shocked, Anna rolled off the bunk and spun around. There was Grigori Rasputin, on her bed. Anna was ready to defend herself. She screamed a furious question at him. If he was such a holy man, how could he possibly justify what he was doing? He said nothing. In silence, he simply crawled back up onto the top bunk, where Yelena lay waiting. Anna stayed alert the rest of the night. In the morning, Yelena gave Anna a talking to. She said Rasputin was only trying to commune with her spirit. It was a divine act, she said. But Anna knew a covering lie when she heard one. There was nothing holy or divine about what Grigori had tried to do. For the rest of the trip, Anna kept her eye on him. And she paid for it, too. When they got to his home in Siberia, he brought them all inside. But throughout the week, he treated Anna as the butt of a joke. He mocked her and whispered about her to the other women in the group. But this meant that Anna saw what the rest of them missed. The side-eye from the locals as they went past. The way Grigori used his charm to disarm the people around him. He even tried it against her. On the train back, he tried again to close in on her for a kiss. But she was ready. It was her fist that met him. After that, Rasputin kept his distance. Anna had his number, though. Rasputin wasn't a holy man. He was a fraud. That's what she told Alexandra. She was grateful that the Empress had sponsored the trip, but Alexandra shouldn't waste any more time or attention on a man who wasn't trustworthy. If only Alexandra had listened. The other women didn't agree, though, and that put Alexandra at ease. She ignored Anna's testimony. After all, other holy men vouched for Rasputin. Alexandra thought maybe Anna just wasn't able to grasp the saintly innocence of simple folk like the Siberian peasant, Grigori. I can only imagine how frustrating it was for Anna. Rasputin was hardly an innocent rustic. There's no doubt that Anna was rightly furious with him, and with Alexandra for ignoring her. She must have wondered if he could somehow be sidelined in favor of someone else who wouldn't use his place in Alexandra's affections to get his claws into the women around her. After all, Rasputin wasn't the only one making a play for royal favorite. There were other men who might be able to jostle him out of the palace. Take, for instance, the man who would first befriend Rasputin, and then bedevil him. The man who came to be known as the Mad Monk. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey.
The Mad Monk. It was a name he embraced. He relished it, especially in later years when he was trying to sell his life story. But there was some truth to it, some violent truth. He was born Sergei Trofanov, but he would come to be known as the Monk Iliador, and he was a man who would vie for power in the royal court of the Romanovs as they slid through the shadows of history toward their end. And if we had to credit just one person for the myths and legends that make the true history of Grigory Rasputin so difficult to nail down, that person is Iliador. First one of Rasputin's most ardent friends, and then his most bloodthirsty foe. Born in a Cossack family in southern Russia, Iliador was the son of a deacon and set on a path into the church from his earliest days. He entered church training in 1901, just a year before he would meet the wandering Rasputin. Like Grigory, Iliador found that he had a powerful way with words. But while Rasputin's quiet intensity gave him power in drawing rooms and prayer circles, Iliador's booming voice was born for the public square. His gift was oratory, and soon he made the crowds who had gathered to hear him into a resounding instrument. His outlook and Rasputin's were aligned. What did he teach about when he made his first impression? The divine power of the Tsar, the holiness of Russia, the need for the people of the empire to stand up and be counted. Here's historian Douglas Smith to tell us more. Iliador's a fascinating and utterly bizarre character. He's one of these figures you really couldn't make up even if you tried. He was, again, one of these sort of uh, popular preachers who unlike Rasputin, does go to theological seminary and does get an actual training in theology and religion and becomes an an Orthodox priest. As a preacher, Iliador counted himself a doctor to a sick empire, but his diagnosis was about as toxic as any illness could have been. Because while Iliador was a man of intense ambition, he was also an extremist and a deeply racist one. He pinned Russia's problems on his Jewish neighbors. And he wasn't alone. The undercurrents of anti-Semitism were strong in Russian culture, and he stirred them up across the empire, growing more and more extreme as he went. Soon enough, Iliador was blaming the changes in the Russian state on Russian Jews, and he said it was his support of the empire that made him criticize the Tsar. When Nicholas let go of autocratic rule and established the new parliament in 1905, Iliador said the only way to stand up for the Tsar was to stand up to him. The Tsar, faith, and fatherland were Iliador's rallying cries, but he turned that into a recruiting tool for the violent nationalist group known as the Black Hundreds. They wanted to decide who was and wasn't Russian, and to kill or sideline anyone who didn't meet their definition. But it didn't take long to mutate from nationalist vigilantes into right-wing terrorists. Iliador snared the racist zeal of the Black Hundreds and whipped it into a frenzy, and he began to preach merciless racist violence. He hated all the influences coming into Russia from Europe, and he believed that bloodshed was the only way to beat Russia back into submission. And they followed through. His right-wing terrorists gunned down a Jewish member of the new parliament one evening while he was walking with his daughter. Iliador sheltered the assassins right inside his monastery. Iliador's role was noticed, but hardly punished. Yes, he was pushed out of the church academy where he taught, but easily went to another. Until he was fired again, that is. 
He bounced around until he finally landed under the supervision of a like-minded priest who supported Iliador's calls for violence. Here's Douglas Smith again. He is the nastiest of anti-Semites, um, is constantly um, denouncing Jews as an evil influence, as the destroyers of the Russian Orthodox people, denounces Nicholas and his government for not doing more to come down hard on the Jews and the empire. He denounces intellectuals. He denounces socialists and liberals and the intelligentsia and what have you. And he, he establishes a fairly large following in uh, the city of Tsaritsyn, uh, quite a ways outside the capital. But he becomes a thorn in the side of the regime because he's, he's constantly denouncing it and calling for violence. Um, and early on, Rasputin is drawn to Iliador and another one of these sort of right-wing priests by the name of Germagian. And the three of them come, become sort of a troika, a threesome of these um, upstart preachers, if you will. In fact, this new priest, Jermigan, was such a supporter of the Black Hundreds and their violent politics that when they battled with police in the streets during the summer of 1908, Jermigan used the power of the church to shelter Iliador from consequences. But Iliador's most powerful ally was the man with the ear of the empress, Grigory Rasputin. In fact, when it seemed like Iliador might face consequences for his role in provoking violent terrorism and anti-Semitic violence, Grigori arranged a private meeting between Iliador and Alexandra. Not that it was an easy meeting. In fact, it seems like Alexandra had her own impression to make. When she sat down with the Mad Monk, she wasn't just going to bow to his teaching. She commanded him to stop attacking the Tsar's ministers. And what's more, he needed to rein in his wild provocations. No more preaching violence. It needed to stop. In fact, if Iliador is to be believed, she even told them that he needed a new spiritual advisor, someone who would curb his wild teaching and bring him back onto the straight and narrow. But maybe you can see where this is going. The person Alexandra told him to follow was none other than Rasputin himself. It's not clear exactly what she hoped would happen. Whether Nicholas and Alexandra were trying to get Rasputin to bring the mad monk to heal or whether Rasputin was trying to bring Alexandra under the influence of a violent nationalist zealot, there's one thing that's clear. In the midst of a political firestorm, the Empress had looked to Grigory Rasputin for answers. And it was only the beginning. He came and went unannounced. In fact, one day in August of 1908, Nicholas arrived home and was surprised to find Grigory talking with Alexandra. Not that this troubled the Tsar. No, he sat down and joined them. And he wrote in his diary that he talked for another half hour. But the fact that Rasputin and Alexandra were meeting alone shows us just how trusted Rasputin had become. And how thoroughly Alexandra had dismissed any concerns about Rasputin's reputation and how it might make her look. After all, she was the empress. Why should she care what other people were saying? especially when he offered the family something they so deeply desired. One high-ranking naval officer who served on the Romanov's imperial yacht would later remember that one day when he was chatting with Alexandra, their conversation turned to spirituality and the church. As they talked, the empress became passionate, and the things she said stuck with him. Alexandra told him that there were people whose prayers were particularly powerful. 
especially people who lived lives of strict holiness, and she insisted to him that Grigory Rasputin was one of these men. After all, hadn't Alexandra seen the power of his prayers when her little son was suffering so deeply? It seems she had been mulling over that experience, and that had drawn some conclusions about the kind of man Rasputin was. In looking to the Bible itself, she found the words, Pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous man are powerful. In Alexandra's eyes, Grigory's power of healing and his righteousness went hand in hand. If he could heal, then he was also righteous. It was as simple as that. But it wasn't just the Romanovs who were becoming more convinced of Rasputin. In fact, if we only think about Rasputin as a counselor for Nicholas and Alexandra during those days, we get the man wrong. Here's historian Helen Rappaport to tell us more. So the thing with Rasputin was initially he was a wise guru to the family and a wise counselor. And that really was a more important function almost than what he did for Alexei, because people have this idea that Rasputin was in and out the back door and up the stairs and into the Alexander Palace every five minutes, ingratiating himself and muttering prayers over Alexei. And that's not the case. He only came when he was invited. He didn't make that many visits to the Romanovs at the Alexander Palace, and he often went long periods not seeing the family or communicated by telephone with them or by letter or telegram. In fact, Grigory was spending more and more time among the other wealthy and powerful Russian families. House after house, an aristocrat after aristocrat, opened their doors for him. Let's have historian Douglas Smith tell us more. He makes his way from palace to palace, going to various aristocratic salons. And these men and women within the upper echelons of Russian society are fascinated by these peasant holy men, if you will. It's like they're being put in touch with creatures from another planet. It's a world that they, being part of the westernized urban elite, have no real contact with. They don't go to Siberia. They don't go to peasant huts. And so it it allows them to enter this whole world of of Russian society from which they're cut off, but which holds great fascination for them. And here's the thing. Some of what we know about Rasputin's teaching actually sounds like good advice. When he stepped into these crowded and rowdy salons and got to know the wealthy families who were partying their way through a period of revolution, Rasputin didn't stay silent. In fact, he often gave spiritual advice that was simple, practical, and matter-of-fact. Yes, go to church. But after a service, go for a long walk. Take a day and get as far away from the city as you can. Become aware of your smallness and let the pride and vanity of your wealth and position of power be wiped away. Find God in the world where you are. Be humble. Feel tenderness. Truly connect with the world around you rather than hiding behind your wealth and power and privilege. He often said that his new followers needed to give up the glorification of their own passions and instead be of service to God. If Grigory Rasputin was the only person giving advice like this to the families of the princes and grand dukes, I'm sure it would have felt like a breath of fresh air. In fact, it goes a long way to describing Rasputin's charm among the elites in the capital. He talked to everyone informally. He ate simple meals. He didn't have even the basic social graces that were expected in their circles. And he knew that, from the beginning, that his directness, his crudeness, was part of what attracted him to people. And he made sure to hold on to it. Because as we know, that attraction to Rasputin was powerful. 
One follower of his, Nikolai Zhevakov, remembered just how much the people at Rasputin's prayer meetings thirsted to hear what he would say. Even when Grigory hardly talked at all, his fanatical admirers tried to read the secret meanings behind every word and phrase. They trembled in his presence. Even though Zhevakov himself was only a minor prince and a powerful official in the Russian church, this kind of reaction was new. Once, when Zhevakov joined a prayer meeting with Rasputin, he watched Olga trembling in a corner, screaming out, He's a saint! He's a saint! Until Rasputin himself got annoyed and told her to be quiet. But it wasn't just these over-the-top celebrations of Grigory that made him uncomfortable. There were other things said about him, too. Things he was far less able to control. It was inevitable, really. As Rasputin became more comfortable surrounded by luxury and truly took a place at court, he would also begin to play a role in the central drama of court life, the game of whispers. And as we know, with Grigory, there was plenty to whisper about, even if the empress had already decided that every story she didn't like was unfounded slander. In fact, the more people who got to know Rasputin, the more stories there were to tell. If Rasputin had a host of followers who felt the allure of his teaching about love and connection, and perhaps even bought into his way of talking about God, there were plenty of others who saw through his game. After all, they saw just how much he was enjoying his new life as a spiritual advisor to the rich and powerful. As historian Helen Rappaport says, Grigory Rasputin was what you might call an opportunist. He became very fashionable, and all these society ladies flocked around him, and there are photographs of him sitting surrounded by admiring women. And they brought him gifts, and they made, gave him beautiful clothes, and they, they fed him and flattered him. And I think in that sense, he was an opportunist. You know, if somebody wanted to give him money or take him out for a good dinner, he was more than happy to oblige. So he did. He did exploit the fascination there was for him initially in St. Petersburg and and was wined and dined and, and, and you know, very well um, looked after and entertained and lived well on it for a while. They brought in curious seekers, yes, but the other stories wouldn't go away either. The stories that let everyone know how he treated the women around him. Take the conversation that our man Zhefakov had one day had with one of Alexandra's most senior ladies-in-waiting. She was the kind of person who saw everything in the palace. And of course, she was usually known for her discretion. But she was troubled. And somehow, one day, she found herself complaining to this prince that there were some unusual comings and goings. Not only was this Grigory Rasputin fellow meeting often with the empress, but when he arrived, he was let in the back door so as to keep his visits off the official guest books. Or at least, this is the story as Zhevakov would later tell it. He says the story startled him, not because the empress was talking off the record with her spiritual advisor, but most of all because her lady-in-waiting was telling stories about it. He warned her that even telling someone like him, a church official, was dangerous. She was talking about the private spiritual life of the empress, and at a time when the Romanov dynasty was on shaky ground, too. She had better keep her complaints like these to herself in the future. She risked feeding suspicion of the monarchy itself. Whatever else might be threatening the royal family, gossip was the first and the worst danger to the throne. Looking back, he couldn't have been more right. Even though Zhevakov probably did not realize just how dangerous these rumors about Rasputin really were, who could blame him? 
Nicholas and Alexander themselves insisted that their meetings with their spiritual advisor were no one's business. They believed that they were simply between themselves, Grigori, and God. But that's where they could not have been more wrong. If only the warning from Nicholas's mother had continued to echo in his mind. Remember who you are. For the Tsar, she had told him, there is no private life. Every personal connection, every friendship, every choice is made under the weight of imperial rule. She tried to make her son understand that famous truism of monarchy. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. But somehow, despite being raised in the royal courts of Europe, neither Alexandra nor Nicholas took that warning to heart. They insisted that they be allowed the private life of a modern family. In fact, because Nicholas was the czar, he commanded it. His privacy would be respected. But when has any royal ever managed to silence the whispers in their court? With the popularity of salon gatherings among the Russian aristocracy, privacy and respect were just about the least likely things I can imagine. And maids do talk. Soon enough, an attendant of one of Alexandra's closest friends was passing around the story that a mysterious peasant with a beastly appearance was slipping in and out of the royal palace, and he was meeting privately with Alexandra. That was enough for the first wave of rumors, but the mill was hungry for more, and every reseller of a tale wants to add something a little juicy to the simple recitation. It didn't take long for the beastly visitor to become a beastly lover. And so it was in the salons of the Russian aristocrats in St. Isaac's Square in St. Petersburg that the most enduring myth of Rasputin was born. Rasputin was hanged. After all, she was a known revolutionary terrorist. Anna Rasputin, that is. In February 1908, she was executed in St. Petersburg. Like Grigory, she was a peasant, and she had been arrested and convicted for a failed assassination attempt on none other than Nikolasha, the Tsar's violent cousin and the husband of their friend Stana. It was no surprise to Nicholas and Alexandra that the sharp end of the revolutionary energy was pointed at them and the other Romanovs. That the woman who tried to carry out such a plot shared a name with their friend Grigory was a mere coincidence to the imperial couple. Of course, by now they had known Grigory for years. But for the aristocrats circling up in the capital, especially those just meeting Grigory for the first time, or worse, just hearing the rumors about him, this was no coincidence at all. And it wasn't just the society busybodies who smelled something fishy. The execution of Anna Rasputin put other, more steely-eyed observers on Grigory's tail. The Okhrana, Russia's secret police. Despite the number of people living across Russia with that name, the coincidence was too much for the head of the Okhrana to overlook. So he followed up on the matter. He started by reaching out to investigators in Siberia. He may have received reports on Grigory's predatory habits, and maybe the record of his youthful conflicts with the local magistrate. But these weren't the only inquiries the Okhrana made. They also wanted something a little more current. They set some agents to tail Grigory on his rounds through the city. They didn't find what they were looking for. No links to Anna. No signs of connection to revolutionary terrorism. No, Grigory's ties were on the opposite side to Iliador and other violent, racist monarchists who supported bloodshed in support of the Tsar. But all the same, the Okhrana agents found plenty to dislike. The man wasn't a terrorist, 
but he also wasn't a saint. Reports came back from their investigators that Grigori's life wasn't so restrained after all. His days of wandering, poverty, and simplicity were left far, far behind. They took note of his seductions and the way he used his teachings on love to pressure women for sex. They watched him go from aristocratic salon to salon, getting progressively drunker and leaving damning whispers in his wake. All of that was bad enough. Bad enough that the head of the Okrana felt Grigory Rasputin shouldn't be, as he said, within cannon shots of the royal palace. So as the head of Russia's secret police, he decided to intervene. He sent word up the chain. The report was far from public knowledge, but in the end made it all the way to the prime minister, Stoilipin, the man responsible for bringing such a potentially delicate issue to the czar. When he did, though, Nicholas didn't take it well. In essence, Nicholas told Stoilipin to mind his own business. Grigory Rasputin wasn't a political issue, and he wasn't a matter for the Okrana. He was a personal connection, Nicholas said. If the thing he didn't say was how important Grigory seemed to be protecting the health of their royal heir, Alexei, well, Nicholas wasn't keen on the whole conversation to begin with. Stoilipin tried to tell Nicholas that this idea was naive. Everything and everyone the Tsar touched was political by nature. Every choice he made sent shockwaves through the whole empire. Nicholas listened, and then he told Stoilipin what he wanted to hear. He would stop meeting with Grigory Rasputin. Stoilipin left satisfied. One more triumph in the service of the Russian state. After all, Stoilipin might just have been the empire's most effective political force. The only problem was, Nicholas had no intention of keeping his word. Nothing changed. Here's Douglas Smith on what happened next. Apparently, Nicholas told Stoilipin, I cannot get rid of Rasputin. Because for me, it's better to have one Rasputin than, you know another hundred hysterical fits from Alexandra if I'm forced to get rid of this man. So you all will just need to find your way to deal with his presence, with the fact that he's a part of our life, because I I just can't get rid of him. My wife needs him, the Empress needs him, and this is just how it's going to be. When Stoilipin and the Okrana realized that they had been played, they took a risk. Unsatisfied that this was just the way things would be, they decided to take matters into their own hands. Together, Stoilipin and the secret police plotted to capture Rasputin and send him into exile. They weren't bold enough to kill him, but their plan was to forbid him from ever coming back to St. Petersburg. Even that was a risk. They knew they might face the wrath of the royal couple, but they decided it was worth it. The Okrana agents swept the streets looking for Grigori, but suddenly the party-hopping holy man was nowhere to be found. At least not by the police. It was almost as if he had been tipped off to the plan. And, to be honest... He probably was. From what we know, it seems Grigori started to travel by side streets, dodging familiar routes and keeping his head down. He quit staying at his home in the capital and started lodging in the private guest rooms of his followers. So, for a while, he slipped the dragnet. Eventually, though, a group of agents hunting Rasputin brought him to the ground. They staked out a house where he was staying and surrounded him. For three weeks, they watched the exits. Any moment, they would have him in their hands. Or so they thought. But then, they got word from Siberia. Grigory Rasputin had arrived home in Pokrovsko. Somehow, his powerful friends had spirited him away. Whatever powers they possessed, the prime minister and the head of Russia's secret police fell short of putting Grigory in chains. Rasputin had won, and the secret police had received the order to stand down. At least, for now. 
It turns out, Theophan was the first one to turn. Or maybe the second. But it was no small matter that changed his mind. It took a brutal personal testimony from one of Grigori's closest followers to finally shake the Archimandrite's good opinion and get him to see Rasputin for who he really was. That testimony came to Theophan in the form of a letter from a woman who had been with Grigori almost from the beginning. And what she described was shocking. That is, if you haven't been paying attention. She had been living with the Rasputin family in Siberia, wanting to share life with the preacher and learn his ways. She told Theophan she had learned all too much. At home, out of the public eye, and surrounded only by his family and his most devoted followers, Grigori acted as his own sort of authoritarian. He wasn't just demanding, but violent. He beat his wife, his children, and all the women in his home. He held them hostage. And when he had them alone, whether in private train cars or in the privacy of his house, he attacked them in every way he could think of. It was a testimony of terror. Theophan used to dismiss the stories about Rasputin as the foibles of a man that could be overlooked. After all, who among God's flock didn't wander from the path of righteousness every now and then? But this was so much more than that. Despite Theophan's friendship with Grigori, and maybe because of it, the weight of all the things he heard about Grigori finally landed. The wool was pulled from his eyes. Theophan made a copy of the letter. He wrote a note to Nicholas, wrapped it together with the original, and sent it to the leaders of the church and to the Tsar. Rasputin is a criminal in the religious and moral sense of the word, he wrote. And from our vantage today, that's perfectly clear. Historian Douglas Smith puts it plainly. Central to who Rasputin was is he was a lech. What gloss was needed? Grigory Rasputin was a predator. It's the simple truth. And with that conviction now firmly in Theophan's mind, he waited for the emperor to do the right thing. He waited for far too long. Because even though Nicholas got the letter from Theophan, the man who had served as his personal confessor, he did nothing about it. He seemed to be confused about how Theophan could say these things. After all, he had been a friend of Rasputin and had even introduced him to their household. It didn't seem to cross Nicholas's mind that the accusations could be true. That's all the more infuriating when it becomes clear that other women were saying the same things, including some who were close to the royal family. Take the nursemaid of their son, Alexei. She cared for the boy and would have been around when Rasputin joined the household to pray in the nursery. What exactly she told Alexandra isn't clear, but we do know she told the empress that Grigori had attacked her, maybe more than once. Whatever it was she said, though, Alexandra refused to believe it. And to add one devastating wound to another, she told the maid never to bring it up again. I can only imagine how much that hurt. It's the sort of terrible injustice that's still all too common. Not that it went unnoticed entirely. The other household staff in charge of caring for the Romanov children started to make some noise. Soon enough, the mood around Rasputin's visits went from cordial to cold. The governess of the four princesses, for one, wanted no part of Grigori's visits, and wanted him to have no part in the girls' lives. To her, he was a scandal waiting to happen. The safety of the girls was at risk, and so the reputation of the Romanov family was as well. And she was right. That said, this seems like the right time to note one thing. There's no evidence that Grigori ever attacked any of the Romanovs. All the girls, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, seem to like and trust him. 
The official Okrana reports said that when it came to the Romanov girls, he behaved properly and honorably. Maybe that overstates the case, but of course the children were never truly left alone with him. Here's Douglas Smith once again. He was allowed access to the nursery where the children were being raised. He would help put them to bed. He would roughhouse with them. It's quite startling, and you really question the judgment of Nicholas and Alexandra because there are maids present, there are nursemaids present, and they see this, and they're they're shocked by it, and they begin to then talk outside the palace, and it's and it starts to spread. Um, again, I don't think there was ever anything untoward that happened at these moments. They were always being watched by the parents or by nurses, what have you. But it does become the source for gossip and rumors. We have letters that have survived that Rasputin wrote to the children, and they're they're you know they're they're very innocent and they're very you know they don't uh, suggest anything nefarious. So there aren't signs that Grigory hurt the children. After all, as a predator, Grigory was an opportunist. It was his close connection to the Romanov family that made him feel powerful, and that gave him the chance to bring other vulnerable people into his clutches. Targeting the Romanov sisters would have put his hunting grounds at risk, but there's no question that he was on the prowl, and he set his claws into other members of the household. But when the governess brought her concerns directly to Nicholas, he once again turned a blind eye. He said to her, I have survived all these difficult years only by his prayers. Her answer was that he had survived by the prayers from all of Russia, but it didn't get through to him. Nicholas told her that he didn't believe the stories that she was telling him. You're too pure of hearts, your majesty, she told him, to see the filth that surrounds you. But Nicholas refused to be swayed. If he believed her, he said it would make him an enemy of his own children, and that could never be true. Like Alexandra, He said that that was the end of it and told her to never bring it up again. And under the silence of that command, the dark future of his entire family continued to fester and grow. There's no doubt the gossip hurt. Nicholas and Alexandra were frustrated that the other nobles at court wouldn't leave well enough alone. They wanted all those prying eyes to turn away, to look elsewhere. If only they had been willing to do a little prying of their own. Despite the about-face from Theophan, despite the investigations of the secret police and the urgent warnings from the Prime Minister, they held onto their connection with Rasputin. He continued visiting them, counseling them, and behind their backs, using their relationship for his own purposes. If you think back to an earlier episode, it's a bitter irony that it was Theophan himself who had convinced them not to listen to the concerns— Remember, when he conducted his earlier investigation, he was too concerned with how it might make him look if Rasputin's real life didn't match up with his appearances. But by convincing the royal couple that criticisms of the Siberian peasant preacher were just jealous slander and backbiting, he helped them shut the door on any legitimate criticism, even when it later came to himself. And of course, the legitimate criticism was also being mixed in with even more poisonous lies— Were the courtiers whispering that Rasputin and Alexandra were lovers? No one knew better than Alexandra how false that accusation was. And if that was false, the rest must be false as well. And there's one more layer going on all the way back to their French spiritualist, Mr. Philippe. Here's Douglas Smith one more time. The more Rasputin is is criticized by powerful men within the government, within the army 
within the church, the more Alexandra doubles down that she is not going to let them take Rasputin away from her. I think she always regretted the fact that she had allowed members of the Romanov family and within the government circles to force her and Nicholas to get rid of uh, Monsieur Philippe. Uh, and she was, she was determined that that was not going to happen again. So Alexandra's arms were wrapped tightly around Grigory Rasputin. And her maids, her friends, her confessor, or the backbiters at court couldn't say anything that would change that, no matter how right they were, either about Rasputin or about what it would mean for the Romanovs and the power of the throne when words started to get around. Because if Nicholas and Alexandra thought that gossip in aristocratic circles hurt, they only had to wait until early March of 1910. That's when the Moscow Gazette made sure that everyone in the Russian Empire knew the name of Grigory Rasputin. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. The spiritual touring actor Grigory Rasputin. That's what the Moscow Gazette called him. But that was just the headline. Things only got worse for Grigory from there. Apparently, the writer knew all the favorite talking points from the elite salons. He was a cunning Siberian charlatan, a predatory lecher, a hypnotist, and a false teacher who used his ideas about holy love to get far too up close and personal with his followers. 
They called him a pseudo-prophet and damned him for teaching spiritual delusions that were opposite of the traditions of the Orthodox Church. But the article didn't stop at condemning Rasputin's delusions and false holiness. It also attacked other areas of his life. It accused Grigory of being a lazy deadbeat, a man who had abandoned his family in Pokrovsko, whose children were fatherless and unruly. And the author even said that in investigating his piece, he had spoken with a church leader who called Grigory a heretic and a sexual predator. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio, with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com unobscured. And as always, thanks for listening. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.